Satnam, I'm Guru Prakarmakar. Guru Singh and I travel the world, loving to meet an ever-growing global community. We are appreciative of your vital role on this planet, for it is your willingness to be here and listen that calls forth wisdom, that activates our collective voice in service. Your questions bring forth the answers. For a wealth of information about who we are and what we do, please visit gurusingh.com. Bless you. Satnam. I really love it when you keep talking because it takes all the pressure off of us setting up. <laughs> like, well, they're not ready. Why should we be ready? Those of you that um, didn't make it to summer solstice in Española, New Mexico this year, uh, I want you to consider next year. We have, um, well, next year will be the 50th anniversary. This year was my 50th anniversary for summer solstices in New Mexico. Because right after I came back from old Mexico, as you read in the book, of course, you've all read the book. Um, I traveled through New Mexico, and at that time, there was an event called the Gathering of the Tribes. And then the following year, Yogi Bhajan had come in January, January 5th. And can you roll the door closed, please? Thank you. And um, so six months later, early June, we, you know, basically the whole class, about 150, 175 to 150 people, depending on how many people went out to New Mexico. We just walked up to him and said, we'll see you in two weeks. And he looks at us, he says, where are you going? He knew nothing about the United States pretty much at that point. We say, we're going to New Mexico. He says, Mexico? He says, I'm coming with you. So he thought we were going to Mexico. <laughs> we end up in New Mexico. And uh, we pitched a teepee, a really big teepee. The base of the teepee was about the distance between these two pillars. So the peak of the teepee was probably 20, 20 feet up there. That was his bedroom, right? We pitched him a teepee and he used it for a bedroom. And he not only taught us kundalini yoga all day because there was no white tantric in those days, um, not here in the West anyway. Uh, he also cooked a bunch of our food. Um, he gave us the worst recipe for watermelon that you can imagine. We thought we were all in heaven because a truckload of pickup truckload of watermelon had come in and we were all getting ready to dive into it and he gets this bucket of black salt, excuse me, black uh, pepper. And he starts walking around with a spoon and just slapping black pepper on your watermelon. He says, this is the only way to eat watermelon. <laughs> we thought, well, we have a different opinion, but he had the spoon in the bucket, so we had. And um, 
And then we had a, um, this is all 50 years ago, then we had a um, uh, painted school bus, psychedelically painted school bus race. Um, <laughs> Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, you know, uh, Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and, and uh, what was the other one? Um, sometime a great note, what is it? And that was, uh, that was Jack Kerouac. So anyway, Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. His sister is the one who started Nancy's Yogurt. Um, the Hog Farm with um, Hugh Romney, uh, no relation to Mitt. Um, and um, the Juke Savages with Tom and Lisa Law. And there was about four buses. Well, Yogi Bhajan's relationship was to Tom Law, Tom and Lisa Law, because they had been here in Los Angeles. And so he figured, I'll be the flagman, you know, the person that starts the race. And so he told Tom, get your bus over along that side over there. <laughs> we didn't realize Yogi Bhajan was a cheater. <laughs> and he gets out in front of all the buses and he's, you know, like from like here to twice that wall and he waves the flag and then he just starts walking across the course and leaving Tom Law's lane open. So Tom Law goes roaring down the field in this, I mean roaring, what, seven miles an hour? <laughs> in this school bus but what he didn't realize was nobody had figured out how to turn those things around in the field. And so it was uh, back, it was, you know, the K-turn, right? Back and forth, back and forth and back. Well, Tom Law, being first down, got stuck behind all the other buses that were back and around. So Yogi Bhajan's plan on getting Tom Law the winning um, didn't work out. I think Ken Kesey won the race. So that was the first summer solstice and we've been having them ever since and this next coming year is going to be the 50th summer solstice and those of you that go with me we get up at between 1:30 and 2:15 a.m. and we are the ones that go around and wake up the entire rest of the camp um, I bring my 12 steering guitar and we are just from 2.30 until 3, about 3.20, we're just singing our heads off. And um, what was it we had on the, on the second to the last day? We had about 200 people. The line was so long that, that it was like, when I stopped to get everybody to circle around, what did it took us about seven minutes before everybody had gathered up. And um, this is what we sing. Hmm? Are you all ready? <laughs> Those of you that uh, know the song. That is such a good sound. That is a good laugh. Keep, keep that. <laughs> keep that, keep that laugh. Because people will try and Take it away from you.
imagine that you're sound asleep. You yourself have probably had, you know, like maybe four hours of sleep, and we've had about three. Rise up, rise up, sweet family dear. Time of the Lord and remembering love is here. Love, love is all you'll say if you'll awake and rise up right away. Hey, hey, if you'll awake, rise up right away. But there's not just one voice, there's like, you know, 70 voices, 100 voices, 150 voices. And we're standing right outside your tent. <laughs> so I would just love for us to all be able to go next year. My wife and I tent. You will want to tent. You can... Um, What is there? There's, um, there's some things that you can rent, but tent is the best way. Because in the middle of the night when it's raining and its wind is blowing and you're holding up your tent, this year um, it was raining really hard uh, the second night I think we were there. And it was it must have been two o'clock in the morning, and then we were. I was going to have to start wake up at two thirty. So, I have a poncho, plastic poncho, and it won't fit over my turban. <laughs> so I, I'm cutting the plastic poncho and I'm fitting it over my turban, and I start playing inside the tent, and you know the plastic is hitting the strings, so it's just deadening the sound. So I'm, I've got my twelve-string guitar. And I've got a coat hanger, a plastic coat hanger. I'm trying to figure out how I can tape this plastic coat hanger on my guitar so it'll hold the poncho away from my guitar. And at 2.15, bingo, rain stopped. Got outside at 2.30 to start wake up. Bright starry sky, you know, the wind had come along and just taken the rain away. So we didn't have to use that uh, contraption. <laughs> but it would have worked. Remind me to, we're going to chant a call this evening. Written history of yoga started about 5,000 years ago with the Vedas and the language known as Sanskrit. But yoga had been going on on the Indian subcontinent for a very long time. It is believed for tens of thousands of years before that. And there was something, there is something unique about the Indian subcontinent. Major mountain ranges, the Rockies, the Andes, 
they run nor they run north south because of the spin of the earth and how those mountain ranges were actually created by tectonic plates crashing into each other and thrusting up the mountains and when the ice ages came this created just basically troughs for the ice to form and to move from the polar regions inward and the only place that was really safe from the ice ages were the tropics between the tropic of cancer and the tropic of capricorn where uh, the the chill factor wasn't as intense but that didn't take into account the indian subcontinent because the indian subcontinent had a unique uh, element a unique geographical element and that is the himalayas the himalayas the himalayas run east to west because the indian subcontinent was a was a floating continent or subcontinent and it crashed up against makes it sound like you know it was just a head-on collision but it took took millions of years um, but it it pushed up against eurasia central asia and in doing so it thrust up the himalayas well since the himalayas or himalayas however you want to pronounce it ran run east and west it blocked the ice ages from descending down into the indian subcontinent now what happened during the ice ages when the bipedal hominids the precursors to um, humans and um, even precursors to neanderthals and cro-magnons and sapiens uh, we were plant-based creatures just like gorillas just like elephants just like horses just like rhinoceroses just like hippopotamuses just like any massive mammal we were plant-based and we had migrated and when the ice ages came in after we had migrated there was devastation to our food supply and so neanderthals cro-magnons and sapiens they all began to eat what was available and it was a flesh-based diet and we never lost that because that flesh-based diet created a lot of aggression a lot of, of competition because it's only carnivores that compete for food it's only carnivores that create territorial ownerships you know lions and lions and tigers not bears lions and tigers and wolves and coyotes and other carnivores they have territories that they mark and that they guard but herbivores all just hang out and eat together they don't have territories they have communities and the purpose of carnivores the actual purpose of carnivores is to weed out the weaknesses amongst the animal stock 
And in that way, the animals can continue to evolve as the weaknesses are taken out by the carnivores, because the carnivores can't take out the stronger ones. But the human, well, let's forget the idea of human. The Cro-Magnon, the Neanderthals, and the Sapiens, all competing for territory. Out of that whole package, the Sapiens were the most aggressive. But if you do your, if you do your genetic testing, you'll find out that you have, you have Neanderthal in you, you've got Cro-Magnon in you, you've got all of those various components in you. Almost everyone does. But the sapiens were the most ruthless. And once they had gotten a taste of that blood, you know, that, that blood food, uh, and it gave them that ability to be aggressive, there was no consideration of higher awareness. The only consideration was to compete for territory, to compete for resources. But all that was going on while in South Asia, that had never happened. And there was never a lack of food because there was never an ice age that descended on the Indian subcontinent. The Indian subcontinent was just as lush and luxurious. It was a cornucopia of food. I mean, it, it, it just grows everywhere. I remember at the school, we have a school in, in Amritsar, we stuck a stake in the ground, which was just a limb that we had cut off of a tree, and a tree. And we stuck the limb as a stake to hold up the tree. Well, the limb that was a stake became a tree. <laughs> and we looked and we went, wow, these trees are planted so close together. So we very carefully, after we realized that the stake had become a tree, we very carefully separated them and planted them near each other because they already had a relationship. They were already married. Yeah. And so, because if you read a book, what is it, The Hidden Life of Trees? The Hidden Life of Trees? You realize that the relationships between plants is not above ground, but below ground. The relationship is within the roots. And they actually intertwine their roots to, to assist each other. And then the fungi, fungi right, the mycelium, will run through the forest and share. It's literally, they call it the forest's banking system. Will share the needs of some from the overages of others, where everybody ends up prospering. Wow. Huh. Not the way sapiens worked it out, you know? Not the way the sapien carnivores worked it out, you know? It's like, um, whew. And right now, with going towards 8 billion of us, hmm, we are pretty, we are pretty doomed unless we figure this out, which is the point of tonight's class. And so in that Indian subcontinent, they were, they didn't have anything to do. You know, they didn't have to hunt for food. Food was everywhere. Food was literally everywhere. They had to eat it so it didn't rot. So it not instead of competing for food and keeping people away from your food supply, you were inviting people over to help me eat my food because it'll rot if we don't. And this 
had been going on for thousands of years where food was so abundant that nobody had to struggle. And in the midst of that, I mean, nobody says, let's go out for English. Let's go out, let's go out for, I mean, some people, you know, some carnivores, let's go out for German, Wiener Schnitzel or whatever, you know. But, you know, the carnivore is, is not, you know, is not that attractive as far as restaurant goes. But everybody says, let's have Indian. Hmm? Right? Well, what do you want? North Indian or South Indian? You know, it's like there's this incredible... They developed food to a science. They developed architecture. They developed the dome in architecture, the strongest form to hold up. They developed so much and they developed meditation and yoga. Because in the midst of their abundance, they began to get in touch with their emotional body rather than just being at its whim, being controlled by it. And they began to get, I mean, look at the, um, the Kama Sutra. Hmm? They got in touch with sexuality beyond anything that anybody has ever experienced since. And the idea of this crazy idea, same-sex marriage, you know, as being something odd. This has been going on for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. The fact that we are so territorial and the idea that some marriage is going to hurt my marriage, my marriage must be on the rocks already, you know. <laughs> This is this controlling mechanism, this distorting mechanism that's going on today is just carnivorous insanity. And so they develop this relationship with their emotional body. And they realized that there were certain things that could actually manifest. There were th certain things that could actually protect you, protect your health. There were certain things that could actually open your awareness. There was other things that you could, if you wanted to, shut down your awareness. There were ways in which you could use this incredible body to go from Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon, Sapien, to actually becoming a human. Hue meaning light, man meaning mind. That you could actually turn the light on in your brain so that your brain could con connect to the mind. And that's what human means. Except for the people that associate in classes like this and other forms of spirit-based work all over the world, there are not very many humans on earth. There are not very many people who have taken the light from the kundalini nerve and allowed it through that healthy spine, maintaining that 60 degree sine wave in the spine from around the, the buttock, through the small of the back, around the mid back, over the shoulders, in through the neck, and up like that. That is the perfect angle 
of the kundalini wave and when you allow that kundalini to come up through the shushmana which is what we do here every class it turns on the light in the mind because the kundalini rises through the crystalline nature of your cerebral spinal fluid and the majority of your body is is fluid it's 70 percent water the amount of water in your brain is between 85 and 90 percent very liquid your brain so the idea that you have this these people thousands of years ago figuring out the science of what it is to be human humanology was regarded as quite outstanding amongst the south asians and it was it was considered to be just ridiculous amongst the carnivores that were living beyond in the ice ages everybody came into india to rip it off you know the the moguls came in and pulled out riches and the english and french and portuguese and dutch came in to bring out riches the french in the southeast the dutch in the southwest the portuguese in the mid midwestern portion and then the english took all the rest of it and they just thought that it was wow this is incredible they shipped all there was no poverty there was no starvation in India until the mid-19th century when the British miscalculated how much grain they could extract out of India while leaving enough for the Indian population. And there was a couple of bad years of drought. There was not enough grain in India. And from that moment on, there's been poverty in India. There's a great book. Uh, it's called... Um, the early Victorian Holocaust and it's about what the British did to India during the, Vic the Queen Victoria period and so when you live a conscious life like the forest and my well-being is only going to be good if all of your being is also well that the collective is more important than the individual because the collective will ensure the individual. It's a little bit like the insurance policy, right? That the collective creates safety net for the individual. And so this process of higher consciousness with the invasion and the occupations that have taken place of highly conscious people. Take the highly conscious people in the Amazon. Take the highly conscious people in other indigenous communities all around the world. You will find that the idea of individual ownership, they don't even have a word for it. It is just about group participation what is happening in today's world now is just the epitome of individual ownership make america great again what's america it's a fiction 
I remember a Monty Python skit. This guy comes ashore on the beach and he has a flag and he, it had a, a, a rubber, I think it was on a toilet plunger <laughs> because he stuck it in the stage. This was a, st a stage play, but they had filmed it. And he, he, he sticks that plunger on the, on the floor and he goes, I hereby claim all lands of this land for the king. And a little voice comes out of the bushes and goes, but sir, we've been here for 10,000 years. He looks around, he doesn't see anything, and he goes, yeah, but do you have a flag? <laughs> Marking territory is a carnivorous event. Individual ownership is a carnivorous event. The idea that we can survive as a humanity, as carnivores, has been proven false. We know that the only way we survive with this many billions on the planet is that we're all vegan. We're not, the number one pollution in the world is not carbon from the oil, coal, and gas industry. It's methane from animal shit. They have cesspools that are larger than big lakes. And those things are polluting not only the air through the methane, but they're polluting groundwater through the uric acid. And so we've gone off on a tangent. And what we're losing is we're losing the capacity to be human. When you're human, what you have the capacity to do is you have the capacity to use all of your various body parts for not only the physical reason that they exist, but also for the emotional reason that they exist. And if you can tune your emotional body, you can actually come into what is called true belief. Belief, true belief, is miraculous. Because when you have a true belief, you can do something, not because you know you can do it, but because you don't know you can't. And when you don't know you can't do something, in your attempt to do it, all of the ways in which it can be done light up, are revealed to you. This is the nature of belief. A very powerful belief allows you to prevail.
I can remember in my own experience in what was called the uh, Takwatsi in the Wirakuta. Wirakuta was these deep valleys in the far distant backside of the Copper Canyons in Mexico. And the Takwatsi were the underground caverns which were pitch black. And I personally experienced with a strong belief that I was going to find my way out. I actually started to see what was there through whatever series of mechanisms, sensory mechanisms were inside of me. And I could find my way out of the pitch black. The idea that you can actually develop, for example, faith. Is it going to contribute to belief or subtract from it? These yogis thousands of years ago realized that faith was an event, was a quality that was stored in the cervical vertebra of your neck. And consequently, they created yogic exercises that would work with the cervical vertebra, the, the first seven vertebra, right? Like this, like this, like this, all of which were maintaining that cervical curve because that cervical curve is something that we're all losing. The reason we're losing it is because we spend a great deal of time like this with the head tilted forward. You read like this, you use your your, your um, dumb device like this. I mean, the idea of calling that smart is stupid. This can be smart. This can be addictive. Yeah. But we do so much of this that we're actually losing what's called the cervical curve. And what's happening when we lose the cervical curve is that we're getting radiating pain down the arms. We're getting all kinds of frozen shoulders. We're getting all kinds of things that don't do well for our joy. Hmm? Because this is connected all throughout here, we are also losing the trust which is also at the lower region of the cervical vertebra. We're also losing hope, which is in the thoracic. Quality of the thoracic. These yogis would study this. They would fast for weeks. And they didn't have any distractions. There was no electricity. There was no electromagnetic fields. There was no radiation except from the sun. These were really, really clear, pure beings. And they were studying these emotional components so that they could work with them. Just like how did they ever figure out how to make a cake? <laughs> you know, somebody didn't just go, okay, well, take a little of this and, and, and a cup of this and a teaspoon of this and a, and a this and a, and a, you know, they didn't go. That was trial and error, right? There was a lot of bad cakes made <laughs> before they got a good one. 
The same thing holds true with the emotional body. There was a lot of bad yogic postures created before they finally came up with the good ones. The idea that they figured out that the heart is your will. It's why French for heart is cour. Courage means time of the heart. Courage means a time of the heart. Will, willfulness, willingness. I will. The pelvic bowl. Mm. The pelvic bowl is your concept, your purpose, your mission. This is it. This is where your purpose sits inside your pelvic bowl. Well, it's, yogis call it the salad bowl because it has all of these glands and organs which will either distort your purpose or, pre or, or present it either, and let's go, let's go rhymey, it'll either prevent or present your purpose. Hmm? What about bitterness? Good or bad? What about, um, what about salt? Good or bad? The right kind of salt saves your life. The right kind of salt saves your life. Your liquid in your body, your blood is salty. You taste your blood? It's salty. The first glass of water you're supposed to drink in the morning should be salt water to help restore your blood. First thing that you should take in the morning, salt water to help to recharge your blood. So in proper amounts, really essential, not good or bad, essential. Bitterness. In the right amounts, it is essential. What do they use bitters for? Separate. Hmm? To separate. To separate. To separate. Yes. When you have a soup and it just tastes like soup, what is it? Soup. <laughs> it's because everything has been so blended that there's no distinction. But if there's no distinction in your life, you can't make a decision because you can't tell the difference between one thing and another. And so there is what's called bitters that comes out of your gallbladder, which comes from the gall from your liver that is then passed on to the spleen because the spleen is the decision maker and the gallbladder is the separator, the distinguisher. And if you don't have a gallbladder, you still have the etheric form of the gallbladder. It's still there energetically. Can you imagine? Some of the exercises that we're going to do this evening are going to create that bitterness and then to create that distinction in order to create that decisiveness. 
And then the yogis figured out what are the foods that feed those various glands and organs that are on top of your mission. Because if you can have distinction and decisiveness, then you can make decisions that tend to your purpose. And then all of a sudden, your purpose starts to seem possible. When your purpose starts to seem possible, do you increase or decrease your belief? This is what it is to be human. That other life, you know, like... <laughs> that life is not human. <laughs> that life is the most dangerous animal on the planet. Most dangerous animal on the planet. Because it has no capacity to work with its emotional body. And all it does is prowl the planet to find stuff to put in or on its physical body. And if it doesn't know its own emotions, it doesn't care at all about your emotions. And so it can hurt you without having any thought of value. It can separate women and men from their children and from each other. Which is the most hideous thing that this country has ever done besides the atomic bombs. What we're doing right now in the eyes of the rest of the world is shameful. Because we're not human. And in order to become human, we must learn to master our physical body, our emotional body, our mental body, and our spiritual bodies. And I'm calling on each and every one of you because I'm telling you, this time is going to get worse. I mean, it gets worse every week. And we haven't seen the beginning of it. But what we cannot do is we cannot be frustrated, discouraged, or at all aghast by what is going on. What we have to do is we have to continue. Without sadness, we have to continue to build our expert capacity so that we can be absolutely, within 30 years, walk on water enlightened. And I am not using a figure of speech. I'm using a reality of fact. Because what we're doing, laboring in three and four dimensions here on Earth, is primitive. Stone Age. We come from the future. We've incarnated on planets so much further advanced than this. And we've come back here to save this place. We are the saviors. We are the prophets. It's not about one great person. It's about everybody being great.
Not everybody, but everybody that has the capacity to be great, to be great. Because it's a one-room schoolhouse, and not everybody on this one-room schoolhouse planet Earth is in the same grade. Some are kindergartners, some are preschoolers, and you are advanced graduate students trying to get your PhDs. And you're going to get them. And the PhD is called your enlightenment. Because when there are tens of millions, not billions, but tens of millions of enlightened people, the wave will be so phenomenal, so phenomenal. Our lives will be so magical, so graceful, that the rest of the ones on the earth that are not at all able to be that will begin to be attracted by our grace and our love and our deep compassion because we will not pull rank on anyone. And then there is the possibility of peace on earth. Not because the strongest nation in the world is enforcing the peace because peace is not something that you enforce. Peace is something you inspire. Because what happens when your emotions stop being noisy, just random noisy, and you actually start using your faith and hope and, and, and trust and all of these incredible qualities in your belief system, your brain opens up, and instead of seeing just danger points... guess it doesn't really matter, does it? <laughs> Instead of just seeing danger points, which is what someone who is insecure and uncertain will only do. And if you don't look just like me, if your habits aren't just like mine, if we're not doing just the exact same thing, then I consider you to be a threat to me. If I'm... These words are so improper, but they're the common words. If I'm heterosexual and you're homosexual, you're a threat to me. If I'm a man and you're a woman, you're an object for me. If I'm Caucasian and you're of color, as if Caucasian isn't of color, then I don't know, and I don't know about you. You may be something that's a threat to me, so I'm going to try to control you. And that's what's happening in the world today. But when I don't focus on the danger point, but it's just a part of the entire recipe, I say, yeah, of course there's danger. But look at all of the opportunities that surround the danger. And that is literally medically, the difference between the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system. And you've got both inside of you, and the majority of humanity do not use the parasympathetic nervous system because it tends to open their heart, open themselves, and they tend to become too vulnerable. They feel unsafe. And what we have to be able to do is prove to the world slowly. Any one of us walk on water tomorrow will be killed on 
Sunday as a, you know, a threat. <laughs> so even if you can, don't show it yet. <laughs> Just saying, hold on to it for another 15 years <laughs> till more of us have figured it out. You want to read a great book? Life and it's a five-volume book. You can get it on Amazon. Life and Teachings of the Masters of the Far East, written by a man by the name of Spalding. It was it was a um, it was an expedition in in what's now called the Seven Sisters area of northern India uh, into the Himalayas, and they and they went into areas where there was these profound masters and. They talked about all of the disciples and students through their history, Muhammad and Jesus and the Buddha and all who had studied in these systems. It was an expedition in 1894. And the guy that went on that expedition that experienced what he wrote down, Mr. Spaulding, was so scared to publish the book, they didn't publish it until 1920. And it was a Unity Church publishing company out of Kansas City, Missouri, that's now here in Marina del Rey. They moved, called Devores, D-E capital V-O-R-S-S, Devores Publishing, that published the book. And you'll be fascinated, fascinated. All kinds of walking on water, all kinds of levitation. I can remember the first time that I saw a yogi in India levitate, I almost vomited because it is so disorienting to see someone do that. It completely shatters your internal balance that your system goes like that, you know? So this yogi rests his elbow on a cane, like this, and then has his partner lift his legs and his body up so that he's resting on the cane and now his body is straight out like that. And then his partner, who is holding the body up, checks with him and lets go. And now there's the cane, there's the elbow, like this, and there's his body. And there's me. How do they do that? Last bit before we do our first Kriya, the first exercise. Anybody in here, many people have, hear about the women or the woman or the woman here or there who has lifted a car off her child. Hmm? Raise your hand if you've heard such a story. Yes. Documented, true stories, etc. Well, it's impossible. Not possible. Even if the muscles could lift that much weight, the tendons and ligaments would snap. So how does it happen? Same way you walk on water, same way you levitate. When a woman realizes her child is trapped, 
she goes into what is called a state of shock. A physical state of shock is an out-of-body experience. If you remain in a state of shock, and that's why they try to warm your body up. If a person goes into shock, they try to warm the body up. They put blankets on it. Because if you remain in a state of shock long enough, you will die because your body will lose its temperature and you will die, in a you will die from shock. But in the early stages of shock, you're in what's called that in between the physical world and the etheric world. Anything that happens on the physical plane happens first in the etheric plane. And so what does happen with these people who have lifted cars off of, off of friends or their children? They run in their etheric body to the car, which carries their physical body with it. Their etheric body lifts the etheric body of the car, which lifts the physical body of the car with it. While holding it up with one hand, they reach down and pull their child out in the same way. Now that's impossible to do, except if you're doing it in the etheric world. And the only thing that sends those people into that etheric world is the utter shock of the circumstance. Well, over the next 15 years, you will train yourself to go into that state of shock. And in that state of shock, you will be able to do anything. Anything. Hmm? So here it is. We've passed the summer solstice, and now things get real. So from here on forward, we're going to be very much attuning ourselves to getting ourselves into that condition over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I'm not leaving. So that we can lift this world, not just an automobile, but we are going to lift this world and create true human beings. Because the way this thing is going makes everybody sick. The way this individual gathering of resources and stripping and, and poverty and separating children is insane. Bless you for joining us. Visit gurusing.com for an ever-expanding archive of lectures, videos, yoga sets, meditations, and more. All classes can be found now on gurusing.teachable.com. There's going to be long-form classes available there, 30-minute long yoga classes with Kriya. There's also what is called a Kundalini Recharge. It's a brief lecture about something like depression or gratitude or achievement or partnering or success and it'll be a lecture with a pranayama breathing exercise and a single asana that you can just jump into during the day and then it'll round out with an affirmation or meditation and these will be like 11 minutes and then there are also going to be audio files which are guided 11 minute meditations which you can listen to and that's all within gurusing.com satnam